Let's make it count as a campaign to help the next generation learn about their community and world through data. For this episode, we're going to jump into geography, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Mikkel Marin. Mikkel, welcome to the show. Hey, Jeff. Thank you. Hello, everybody. So we're going to dive into some really cool data use cases. And one thing we do with, with each of our guests is understand more about your background and your particular passion as it relates to data. And so could you tell us about your journey and maybe what led you down your current path of focusing on mapping and the world of geography? Sure. Well, I started off my career a long time ago uh, when the World Wide Web was just uh, coming into wide consciousness. Um, so about 30 years ago. I was very interested in the web and the flow of data around the world. I then got into interested in notions of, of open data and really like the, the standards and the protocols to make it really easy to share data um, and information across the world. And while I was digging into that, I just kind of stumbled, this is early 2000s, stumbled into geography. I was really interested in visualization and, and seeing what data could be like and, you know, putting something on a map, uh, I have to say just, it was just the most obvious thing <laughs> to do. Um, it was, it's just really uh, felt like a natural way of, of reviewing patterns in data. I was always, you know, I was, I was working in internet companies. I worked at Yahoo um, back then. And I was always interested in trying to connect what I was doing with technology and, and data to some kind of impact on the world. And it literally, I think, took me about 10 years until I really like, figured out, especially through mapping, a way that technology can have on the world. So that's really been my my passion, as I feel like maps and digital geographic data gives us a means for understanding the world around us and for making smarter decisions and for, for seeing the things that we want to happen in the world um, help them come into being. And understanding your background, I can, I can appreciate and We're going to dive into many of the projects that you help spearhead. Uh, but but for those who who may maybe aren't as familiar back back in the let's say early two thousands, what were some of the barriers or or why wasn't this this open data ecosystem available? And can you just kind of describe a little bit of the wild wild west as it relates to this area? Well, part of it was getting information in a format where it was easy to exchange um, the. The early web, of course, was you know everything hinged on on HTML, and suddenly millions of web pages were coming in, into being. But if you wanted to even do something like aggregate all of the news stories together from different news websites, and this was really of interest to me because I was working at Yahoo on this kind of problem on a a product called My Yahoo, which is a personalized newspaper essentially. Um, you needed to. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of scraping. There's still a lot of scraping, uh, trying to get structured data out of, out of, um, data that's, you know, just oriented for presentation on the web. Um, but back then, that's all there was. There were no standards that to define how do you do something as simple as say, this is the headline. Here's a link to the story and here's the description and here's an image that you can show. And so everyone would make up their own, own thing, their own protocols. Um, we used, uh, XML was like a really exciting <laughs> way of, um, being able to define your own schemas, your own languages for how data is structured. But there was no, um, there's no kind of standard across the web. Um, and what actually got me excited towards the end of my tenure at Yahoo was the emergence of, um, common standards like 
RSS, uh, which stood for really simple syndication. And it was really, it was really simple syndication doing exactly the kind of thing I was discussing. And once you had a standard in place, an open standard, then not only could you publish to that standard, but then other folks could read that standard and build tools around, around that standard. Of course, XML now is still definitely behind the scenes in a lot of, a lot of places, but um, other you know, formats which are easier to, pro- to, to parse and process on, on the web um, and in JavaScript are much more common uh, JSON formats. And I was always interested in pushing those open standards to also include things that could give you a little bit of information so that you could make maps. Um, so added like adding latitude and longitude to RSS feeds gives you GeoRSS. And if you publish in GeoRSS, then it's really easy to, to make a map. And um, yeah, I always wanted to get beyond that, you know, just the difficulty of structuring and sharing data to, par- to a place where it was really easy to put something together and, and visualize it. So that was that's the other piece is that you start to get those open standards and there's a lot of data available. Then you start to see, see ecosystems of other tools which can parse and analyze and visualize and do interesting things with, with those data. But back then, everyone, you know, it was, um, we were all rolling around. There was no, there was no GitHub. <laughs> there was no Stack Overflow. Uh, you read, um, you, you bought books from O'Reilly and that's how you learned how to program and you talked to your friends and maybe you went on to um, Net News to like ask questions, but it was really, um, it was, there was not as much information sharing on how you do all this stuff and how you learn. Um, it was really like, you, we had to, it had to be invented. Um, and so that was, that was sort of the, the state of things in the late nineties, early two thousands. It's so interesting. And, and I think along with the tech technology convergence, you touched on, on the advent of, of new community models and you currently lead community of Mapbox. I'm curious around that same time frame. What what did you begin to see with with how people would collaborate and work together? And could you kind of maybe give us a timeline of how things like crowdsourcing and how things like you know software communities to work on bigger societal problems came to be in, in your in your view? You know, if you recall, the dot com crash was in two thousand one, and uh, this led a lot of people to who were doing um, highly technical things and were creative and passionate about the web suddenly had a whole lot more time on their hands. And people who had ideas, who wanted to try new things, suddenly had the time and space to, to do that and um, could find other people who were interested in those same things. And I became very interested in maps and you could find other people all around the world who were interested in these, these, same, these same topics. And so you would start to talk to each other online, share examples of what you were building, get excited about each other's work, and hey, even meet in person um, at times, which is so all these like new communities just started to sort of naturally to form out of the, you know, the excess time and the really the ability to connect and people who were just had a lot of creative ideas they wanted to um, wanted to work on. I think around that time, um, Wikipedia started up and that was a real um, inspiration to a lot of folks of what could happen when you use the natural architecture of the web to do something more and cooperate um, anyone anywhere around the world. And me being interested in maps, um, I came across a project in the, the early days then called OpenStreetMap. I was living in the UK at the time and um, OpenStreetMap started in London in 2004 and I came across it about a year later. This was a, a way of 
collaborating on creating geographic data that was very similar to or was inspired by Wikipedia. Anyone could contribute, anyone could edit, anyone can use the data. There were um, data licenses, people were starting to explore licenses for data, um, which specified that it could be used and reused openly. Um, Creative Commons um, had had come out and there was interest in like, how does that apply to other kinds of things? This project in particular, OpenStreetMap, started to attract a lot of people who were interested in making maps themselves. This is Remember, this is also pre-Google Maps and Google Maps API. So if you actually wanted to make a visualization um, with a map, not only did you have to write, write the software, which I did write a software back then called WorldKit, to to do the, to do visualization in Flash, uh, which was which has just been totally deprecated uh, finally this year. But you also had to get the base map data itself, and that turned out to be at that time solely the domain of um, proprietary or or closed government models. So if you wanted to in the UK access just a roadmap, you would have to pay tens of thousands of pounds to the Ordnance Survey in order to get access to that data and then process it and use it in your software. And this was, uh, you know, if you're just a few hackers who are interested in experimenting and, and figuring out new things, that's a big barrier. And so a project where you could create the map data yourself just by walking around with GPS units, which was another key thing for the geospatial world, like the price point of, and the quality of, um, of GPS, where it was getting to the point where it was really consumer grade. You can get data off of GPS and being able to transform that into a collaborative map um, with some, you know, some simple, simple APIs. That was really attractive to a lot of people because there really was no other option. This is really helpful to have, have the foundation of how, how this comes together. And I think what hit home to me was seeing some of the d- disaster response efforts led by the humanitarian OpenStreetMap team and the State Department. Uh, which you were involved with, um, and and just how you could mobilize a community to solve literally the the biggest challenges in in the world at that time that that no other tech company or that that even governments um, were were struggling to solve. So can you kind of talk to some of the disaster response efforts and some of the humanitarian efforts that when you know when this technology got stood up and when the community came together made things possible that that maybe weren't foreseen previously. Yeah, this was this was one of the key reasons why I was interested in in OpenStreetMap when I when I discovered it in, in 2005. This was um right around the time of Hurricane Katrina as well as the the Southeast Asian tsunami and getting a picture of what was happening in New Orleans or in the entire Indian Ocean basin was nearly impossible and in the face of a disaster like that, things change really fast. So even if you had access to, you know, that base map data, you have bridges that are out, you have structures which are destroyed, you have only certain amenities are still open and and accessible to to people, the location of shelters, there's a lot of dynamic data. And yeah, I, um, I guess, I always felt, you know, it's interesting you say that it was, um, you know, that was really like really hard problem because I always felt like data and and putting together the data. This is going to be the easiest problem that we could possibly solve. Dealing with a humani- with a disaster, and humanitarian response, marshaling the the resources, preparing for those kinds of things. This is these are the really hard problems. And if there was any place where we can make things 
a little bit easier. I think we have the means. We already are starting to see the the infrastructures and the communities which can pull together the data which is needed for these responses. We just need to apply it. This is this is going to be a whole lot easier to solve. So that was um, not hot, not to not to say that it wasn't difficult along the way. There's a lot to figure out, and it took years. So, so I really got involved with OpenStreetMap around 2005 and was really interested in this idea of applying it to disasters right away. I think there were a lot of generous people <laughs> along the way because this is a really crazy notion. You know, disaster response is something which really stay, you know, it, on the face of it, you really need to have official entities. There's a lot of resources which, which, are, which are marshaled. And the notion that like a map that anyone could edit um, would be creating base map data that a, an official response by governments and international agencies would, would be relying on. Even now, when I when I just when I say that, it seems a totally ludicrous notion. But it seemed worth pursuing, and so I learned more, particularly around about the humanitarian response system and the international system. And it's a very different world from the world of open source and open data in the hacker world. So you have to start to learn how to translate what you're doing and make sure that what you're doing fits into what those set of expectations. And over the course of several years, that evolved from kind of a corner or, you know, a part of the OpenStreetMap community to in around 2009, what we then titled Humanitarian OpenStreetMap Team. It may have just continued like that as sort of like a, a crazy idea, um, if not for the tragic and unfortunate circumstances of the the Haiti earthquake in January 2010, where there was no base map data. The National Mapping Agency in Haiti was destroyed. Their building was destroyed. They lost many personnel. Um, and you had a sudden flux of thousands of international aid workers trying to respond to a disaster of like just unimaginable magnitude. And what happened, like not only OpenStreetMap, but broadly in like the, the digital humanitarian sphere, projects like Ushahidi um, and others started to leverage these tools to to gather the data that was needed. And um, we got access to satellite imagery. That was this is another key thing for for the geospatial world is getting easier and low cost or free access to pictures of the world um, within a day of when they were taken. Um, that kind of turnaround was essential. And we used that imagery and marshaled the community to to edit and produce like the best map of Port-au-Prince and then the rest of Haiti um, that had ever been been seen. So yeah, uh, terrible circumstances, but, but because it was the only thing available, um, it got picked up and the quality was good. And then this, this became a, an event that proved that this is you know, this is actually something that could work. And today, um, it's pretty much pretty much the default. If there's a disaster anywhere around the world, and even increasingly here in the U.S., uh, you'll see you'll see OpenStreetMap getting picked up. I know I was first made aware of, of this approach when I was at the Census Bureau, and because of because of how the census uses and helps create geographical boundaries and, and owns that. Uh, as part of the federal statistical system, it was it was pretty interesting to to think about how these these communities were being mobilized to solve some of these challenges and to support these disasters. And in parallel, the census was ramping to to try to figure out how do we count the entire population that's constantly changing with with different uh, streets and, and vacant houses 
And, and so a lot of the approaches through analysts at census data centers took a page out of the OSM playbook and, and were actually using, and some of it was, uh, you know, computer aided, but some of it was through the expertise of an analyst to understand where should we focus resources. And so it, it was just really interesting to understand how all of this body of work impacted real people's lives and really was monumental in humanitarian response efforts, but was also helping move the industry forward, helping make government work more, more efficiently. And so there's just so many compelling use cases that this has, has led. Yeah, just to, just to, to add on that, there's certainly mm-hmm. been a, a positive interaction between government-produced open data sets, Census Tiger, for instance, which is the basis of a lot of the data that originally is in, in the U.S. for OpenStreetMap, as well as commercial Providers all, all leverage that um, to a great extent, but then there's also you know instances of both directly governments taking OpenStreetMap as a signal, uh, where there's interesting discussions right now with Department of Transportation to use data sets that are span the entire you know 50 states of things like where are level railway crossings. It's hard to it's hard to aggregate that from all the the federated sources of all the all the states and territories. That's exactly the kind of thing that OpenStreetMap does. But then as you're saying further it sort of inspires new ways of working. And some of those are both I've seen both examples of like directly using the open source software uh, that underpins OpenStreetMap, which is there's a rail Ruby on Rails application and then an ecosystem of tools which interact with the API. Actually taking a copy of that and setting it up and then using it for a completely different data set or more loosely to being inspired by that that model. And so, yeah, it's great to see how it's um, kind of changed the way that map making is done in a lot of places. Sure. So you did a tour of duty in the Obama administration. You were a presidential innovation fellow. You and I worked together during that period. And I'm curious... When you kind of came from outside industry and then were now embedded in government uh, and you were at the State Department, what perspectives changed? You were brought in to support uh, the administration's response to the Ebola crisis at the time. You helped put on the first ever White House Mapathon. What, I guess, perspective or different challenges did you learn or stumble upon once you went over to the government side? I've lived in D.C. for almost 10 years now, so I actually knew some of the folks who were we're at the State Department Humanitarian Information Unit who had put together the MapGIF program, which was an effort by the State Department to make satellite imagery available. And this is a, this is a really key, key need available to when there's a humanitarian situation available, available for editing into, into OpenStreetMap. So I knew a lot of those folks, but it was interesting. Like as soon as I, um, uh, became a PEF and, and, and took an oath and joined the State Department, of course, very, very quickly, the, um, the kinds of conversations I was having and the depth that we were, we could go really changed. I was suddenly one of them. Um, and so that was, that was one of the most notable things at, at the start. I guess I also at the time had known about and just, and also discovered that there was other efforts with OpenStreetMap across the federal government. So it was not just at the State Department, but there was uh, a lot of work at the USAID Geo Center. The Peace Corps at the time was really doing a lot of great work with OpenStreetMap. There were there were similar efforts at USGS, um, National Park Service, Department of Transportation, and and in other other agencies in, in DC, like the World Bank and the American Red Cross, all had done a lot of OpenStreetMap work. And I guess what I was surprised to first find out is the degree to which the bureaucracy and the kind of the you know, the institutional barriers 
were both a real and a not real thing. Like they were they were real in, in in the sense that the people who were were doing all this work were not. It wasn't natural for them to collaborate and reach across to someone, uh, you know, just across across town who they also know and maybe have you know gone to beers with and stuff, but to actually work together, even and learn from each other, even though the the kind of work they were doing in this case in OpenStreetMap extremely similar, the same thing, and sometimes even working with the very same um, same people outside of the government. So. Yeah, so I was surprised that it was that, you know, that there was resistance to like saying, hey, maybe we should, you know, just kind of just meet with with USAID. Wait a second. Well, that has to go up. You know, we have to get go up the chain and make sure like that we uh, we have proper, you know, the conversation between like the leaders of the two groups and then et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So being a PIF, <laughs> we, uh, you know, we had license to um, to just do things sometimes. And so it started getting people together. And um, yeah, it was it, it was remarkable. To see, you know, just the kind of conversations which are really natural um, if you're all working in the same community. When you could create, when you just could create the space for that to happen, and it doesn't happen just working at your desk, but coming together, were really fruitful. And f- for example, is around this time there was a lot of work in Bangladesh. I think there was project uh, projects from the World Bank, American Red Cross, USAID, and one other that I don't remember. We're all doing projects in Dhaka. And it turned out they were all working with the same people in DACA and, and we're all mapping somewhat different parts of DACA, but it wasn't to the point until the point where we all got together and like got the map of DACA and everyone drew, okay, well, we're, we're going to, our plans are to map this neighborhood and our plans are to map neighborhood, this neighborhood. And there was no coordination prior to this to actually see, oh, okay, well, here's how we can do this more, more effectively. And so just getting people in the room and talking to each other, um, outside of the, uh, you know, the official structures that was, um, that was exciting to me to see, you know, to see the government do do things in a, a new way, and that's why we had the White House Mapathon. It was an opportunity to get people together from both inside and, and outside the government and do something that's easy to do, but it's just not normally the way thing things are done. So you have to you have to push up against the, those things sometimes. Well, and since you've since you've left government, you continue to push this area forward from the private sector. So at Mapbox. The team has done some incredible work with building out the platform. And in the current time frame, I, I know, for example, the education community, which we're involved with for Let's Make It Count, has access to a number of resources to to help encourage and inspire the next generation to to do mapping. And so I wanted to to close our conversation with some of the use cases that may be possible and that you might might encourage some students to consider that are either interesting data problems or just some of the most pressing issues that face society today. I lead the Mapbox community team. Um, we do have an education program at, at uh, mapbox.com slash community slash education, lots of materials and um, tutorials. The community team right now, we've been very, as many of us are, are, are thinking a lot about the election and we're particularly thinking about access to, to the vote and, and access to participate in democracy. So there's been a couple projects that we've been involved with recently, which I'd think are, are evocative and interesting. Um, the first was following a lot of the, the news about what was happening in the post office and whether or not post boxes were, were being, being removed. Um, a few of us actually also in, within the OpenStreetMap community were kind of interested to figure out, well, can we, can we map where all the post boxes are and where all the post boxes that have been removed are? Because you would just see 
you know, social media, you see like a, a picture of a, a place where a post box used to be, but how do you get that overall pattern? Turned out that getting access to the data on where post boxes are is um, is not that easy. It's not it's not open data. The USPS is an is an interesting part of the government in that way. Through two means, we were able to get access to po- post box data. One, someone had done a uh, Freedom of Information Act request last year to the post office and got a database of the locations of of all the post boxes at that time. Someone else decided to uh, scrape the post office website. So you can go to the USPS website and put in your address and it'll show you where all the, the post boxes and post offices are near you. They wrote a script to get all the data out of that. And then, so we had a, we had a really good data set covering. It's amazing the number, you know, how many places the coverage that the post office has in the U.S. It's just unbelievable how connected it is into every part of the geography. And anywhere there's people, there's the, the post office is there and post boxes are there. So from that, we we very rapidly built a little website and app to first visualize all of that data on a map. And it's a lot of data. So we had to, we processed it with Mapbox and uh, made it look really good. And then using um, yeah, using serverless and Amazon Web Services, set up a really simple API to get reports of where missing boxes were and a little in you know a nice front end um, that was mobile friendly so that anyone as you're going around you could record whether the post box was still there or not and we've gotten um gotten you know thousands of responses which is which is amazing and uh, and some identification like both problems like where the post post box go um but also interesting stories a couple here in dc it was like there was a post box which was hit by a car and that's why it wasn't there anymore because it had to be removed and would likely be replaced so all that (laughs) all that to me (laughs) suggests like i want to know a whole lot more about how the post office operates and what's the normal turnover for replacing post boxes what's the What's the amount of mail which moves through all the post boxes and post offices every day? What's the regular? We've seen kind of the headlines that things have slowed down, but there's a whole lot more information there, which is, I think, of, of public interest. And so there's kind of a push and pull there, I think, where you had this community effort, which then starts to, I think, hint at, well, is there more, is there more information that, you know, that could be more, more forthcoming and interesting for? for the residents of this country to know know what's happening with the post, postal service similar uh related to that there was um in Harris County which is uh in, in Texas where where the city of Houston is they there's been some some back and forth on the number of postal of uh voting drop boxes drop box locations which could be based in in Harris County but at one point there were 12 across the entire county for three you know nearly 4 million people um, in the county. Uh, and then there was a, an order that it had to only be one and reduced to one for the entire county. And I contrast that here with in DC, where we're a, a city of about 800,000 people, we have 50 drop boxes. So already this pretty, I can walk to any. Previously, when there were 12 in Harris County, about 75, 80% of the of the of the residents of the county were within a 20 minute drive of any of those post boxes and Harris County is really really big when they reduced down to one we wanted to figure out well, what was how how accessible were there so we got open data from Harris County on where all those post boxes were so drop boxes were for votes for ballots we used an API at Mapbox called the isochrone API you basically give it a point and say draw a polygon 
of all the area which I can reach by driving within 20 minutes. We merged those all together, and then we overlaid that on census data to determine what was a population which was within 20-minute drive of all 12. We then did the same thing with the one remaining post box, which was within a 20-minute drive of about 700,000 people. And so there was, you know, you know, several, you know, three or four times less uh, availability, accessibility to access those, those drop boxes for, for early voting. So those are the kinds of projects which we're encouraging and looking at right now, like not just um, elections are national, but there's also local stories everywhere to tell. And there's interesting data everywhere. And so we're actually running a, a, a challenge right now uh, for people to whatever is relevant or important for where you are for the for the election, find what data is out there, put together maps, which tell interesting stories and our and insights into the functioning of our democracy. Well, this work is so important. And I think it speaks to why the data is so important, why all of our voices are so important. And so thank you so much, Mikhail, for coming on the show and, and breaking this down. Happy to talk to you.